I want to continue on speaking out of Revelation chapter 1 and contrasting it somewhat to what we're going through today as a Christian uh, church. What we see taking place in the political landscape of America, the changing, the transition of the God from a Christian nation at one time to a post-Christian world we live in. I explained that last week. I will touch upon it again. And some of the concerns that the book of Revelation is dealing with are the same concerns we're dealing with today. So we will read Revelation chapter 1. As soon as I get there. Okay. Starting in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the thing that must take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in the book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I die, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are are, and those that are about to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for always enlightening us because we are your children. You're deeply concerned for us. You deeply love us, Father God. And you, like this church, Father God, of 2,000 years ago, you want us to know 
the things that are about to take place, Father. God, you prepare your church for things that the future holds. You reach down and you hold before your church a revelation of your son to strengthen us and give us the patient endurance which is only found in Jesus Christ. He's the only answer for tribulation. He's the only answer for suffering. He's the only answer for poverty. He's the only answer for every hardship. Jesus Christ is the church's only answer. The church needs no other answer but Christ. Father God, breathe upon the text, breathe upon the sermon, open up our ears that we can understand these great mysteries, Father God, this great revelation of Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. (coughs) Excuse me. As my sinuses are acting up, my eyes are burning and everything that goes with it. Uh, As we spoke about last week, speaking about some of the spiritual climate that's happening in America today, I will read just some of my introduction from last week, but really uh, adapted to the rest of this chapter of which we, uh, we just read. In light of so much that's going on in America concerning religious freedom, uh, morality, uh, I will again speak out of the book of Revelation. When we understand it from its original historical setting, that's the book of Revelation, we will begin to understand to a greater detail our own socio-economic, political, religious, spiritual climate that we're in today. And what's, what Christians are facing, I don't know if you know, but you're facing something. There's an enemy of your soul that's, it, 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 he, he, he's like a chameleon. He takes on many shapes and forms and sizes, and he's, he attacks. He's out for us. And this is what was going on uh, 2,000 years ago. You see, something happened 2,000 years ago. There was a tolerance within the Roman Empire. It was a tolerance for Christianity. But somewhere around A.D. 81, 82, under an emperor called Domitian, things started to change. Uh, The book we read out of tonight, it was written about 14 years after that. And what happened, what started to change, uh, political opinion and spiritual opinion, economic opinion, started to turn against Christians. And slowly but surely, persecution started to arise against the Christian church. It wasn't a severe persecution. It wasn't a decree from the Roman government to persecute Christians per se. But what it was, in, in geographical locations throughout the Mediterranean world, if, if, if the Christians were uh, not doing what other people thought they should do, if Christians weren't being compliant with the spirit of the age, in morals, in political thought, and other things, they began to be persecuted. And what happened is the little pop fires of persecution would arise all over the Mediterranean world against Christians. But at, at some points it was more severe than others. And if you read the second and third chapter of the book of Revelation, you'll see some churches were being persecuted, other churches weren't being persecuted, even though they were in one basic geographical location. And, and that's what was taking place here. Things have changed. The tide was dramatically changing. Things were happening. They were on the horizon. God sends a revelation through his son, through his angel, to John, to the, the seven angels, the, the ministers of the church, to tell the congregations something is about to come. There's a storm on the way. There's a storm of 
persecution and suffering, tolerance that you once had is all but gone now. Be prepared. And it's under that sort of political atmosphere that the book of Revelation was given to prepare God's people. Well, if we fast forward to today, we realize things are changing in America. And as I spoke about the last week, you know, for, for the most part between the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century, we lived in what we can call a, a, a Christian nation. We had, uh, had Christianity had deep influences in, in the great institutions and the, the policy makers of the United States. Uh, within the school system, academia, uh, within the political system, even economic system, uh, Christianity could sway opinion. It could shape policy. Christian thought and morality could shape things. But in the mid-1900s, things started to change. And we started going from uh, uh, where Christianity could sway popular opinion, where, where Christianity could sway uh, policymakers. We started seeing an intolerance to Christian thought, both morally and, uh, and, and politically. Things started to change. And slowly but surely, we started seeing the tide change into a post-Christian era. And from the 60s to 70s and the 80s, we were in a post-Christian era where Christianity and its thoughts and its morality and its religion, it was tolerated at best. It wasn't persecuted. It still influenced some schools of thought in, in, uh, in politics, in academia, education, and, and all Hollywood was gone by then. Hollywood was sold out to the spirit of the world. Uh, and as we spoke about last week, uh, they have their own agenda. And so what's taking place now, we've moved from being tolerated to we can probably say now that Christianity is a persecuted thought. It's a persecuted religion. It's a persecuted philosophy. Not Christianity, lukewarm Christianity that has sort of made uh, strange bedfellows with politics today, but evangelical Christianity that stands on the word of God for what it is, the word of God. Every verse of scripture is the, is the, is the mouth of God himself. We add not to it or do we subtract. We're evangelical Christians. We truly believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that the Bible is the word of God and it's there to shape everything we think about, how we worship and how we live and how we exercise faith. That is the word of God. That doesn't mean evangelical. That, what I just described, is what's under attack today. And I noted a couple of uh, examples, actually three last week, of what was taking place, if you're familiar with what happened in Houston, Texas. Under the mayor of Houston, Texas, uh, this is a, a gay woman that did not like uh, certain sermons that were coming out of uh, Christian pulpits. She had just agreed to uh, an ordinance within her community that a man who thought he was a woman is an ordinance. Any man who thought they were a woman did not need to have a, a, a medical clearance. It did not need to have any kind of documentation. If you or I said, you know something, I want to go into a woman's restroom under the guise of transgender, no one could stop me. And guess what she did? She signed that into effect. Think about it. 
Now, that's been going on, if you're not sure, that's been going on in New Hampshire for years. It's been going on in California. This is the tide. This is the change. So what happened, five passes, more than five passes, but five passes were, were uh, scrutinized by their sermons. And she subpoenaed these pastors to give them all their sermons, to scrutinize what they were saying from the pulpit. This is an overreach by a local government official to interfere with religious liberties. So when I said there's a danger coming, please understand this affects all of us. This is not an attack just against Christian thought and Christian teaching, Christian morality. It's an attack against all American liberties. It's an attack against the freedom of speech. You think it's the Christian today, but it could be anybody tomorrow. Amen. We saw it already with the overreach of the IRS. The IRS scandal that's taking place in Washington today is... An overreach by, it seems, a democratic liberal government to uh, step in to uh, political organizations that were more conservative in their politics and scrutinize them and hold up the process of becoming a, uh, a non-for-profit organization that can uh, reach out to the masses and, 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 and teach people their political views, their religious views, so on. That was an overreach by the government. But it was strictly against conservative groups. Now that should get anybody on whatever spectrum of politics you are on, that should really get underneath your skin. This is, this is the government stepping into the private liberty of you and me, of every American. In this case, it was a, a left side reaching into the right side. But it, whether it's Obama or George Bush or, the, or a conservative, or a, it makes no difference. It should get us all up in arms. It is outside the realm of the Constitution. It's an attack against the a Constitution. In this case, it's also an attack against conservative uh, religious views and values. I say all that because this is what we're living in. I say all that because that's what John, the prophet, the apostle, who received the revelation from God, who was on the island of Patmos in verse 9 because of his testimony of the word of God, and he went through the tribulation, he was, he was, he was uh, Patmos was for political prisoners. And there he was for his testimony of the word of God and Jesus Christ. He did not back down. He was there, and he wrote, he receives this revelation from God for the seven churches, for the things that are about to come, because the tide has changed. It was to prepare the church for what was to take place. That's what a revelation is. A revelation is something that's veiled, something that's hidden, that God opens up our eyes to understand. I spoke on this last week, and uh, if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to, excuse me, uh, listen to that sermon online. That's all I'll say about that as I go into tonight's teaching. And I said that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now to be sure, verse 1 could be easily translated from the Greek, a revelation from Jesus Christ. Not so much about Jesus Christ, but it really is twofold. Though verse 1 says it's a revelation of Jesus Christ or from Jesus Christ, the whole book is about who? Christ. It's about Christ. Everything that's written there about him personally should have been dealt with. If you have a good study Bible, everything that Revelation deals with, a good study Bible will teach you. 
If you're part of a good teaching Christian ministry, everything that's in chapter 1 should be getting, you should be getting taught over the years from the pulpit and from study, uh, Bible studies and so on and so forth. What's going on here, it's not that the revelation they're hearing is this brand new stuff that he's the son of David or he's the, uh, he's the divine Messiah or he's the son of man. It, th- these aren't revelations. They know that. They've heard that. What they're doing, though, is they're receiving a fresh perspective on what's necessary to live in a world when things start to change and tolerance becomes non-tolerance and all of a sudden things start to change in the Christian climate and in the world we live in. What we need more than anything else is a deep abiding revelation of the awesome nature of Jesus Christ. You need it. I need it. The church 2,000 years ago needed it. We need it today because there is something on the horizon. Not that I'm a prophet or I can read the papers and tell you what's going to happen in 10 years. The book tells me something's going to happen because that's the way God allows it to. So it's important for all of us to realize something is deeply changing and we need to change with it. We need to individually and corporately as a church and I will speak about the church in America, get a deep revelation in our hearts, an up and running understanding of how awesome Jesus Christ is, because he's the only answer for the church. Amen? Whatever you're going through in your life today, I can tell you right now, the only answer is a greater understanding of the awesome sovereignty over all things of Jesus Christ. When we read chapter 1, or even the book of Revelation, it really starts in verse 9. If you're familiar with verse 9, John is cast onto an island called Patmos because of his testimony of the word of God. He would not shut up is what it really means. No matter where he went, he shared Christ under the threat of torture, banishment, Uh, exile, he shared Christ. He would not stop from sharing Christ. And he he finally got put off to Patmos as a political prisoner. He was there because of the tribulation that everybody in Christendom was experienced to one degree or another. (coughs) Though he was threatened, he continued to speak. And his speaking got him put on Patmos. But guess what? You might chain up the apostle, but you can't chain up Revelation. Because God can speak to his apostle whether he's in a pulpit or whether he's in a jail cell or whether he's in a cave with a candle. You cannot stop God from speaking revelation. You cannot stop God from encouraging his people. You cannot stop God from reaching down and nourishing the souls of those saints who need it most. No matter where we are in life, no matter what we're going through, God has a way of speaking his living word into our needy hearts. So, under the, the, under the guise, I'll call it, or under his, his, his imprisonment, he receives this revelation. Though he was a brother and a partner in tribulation, he was also part of the kingdom. Now, to you and me, that might, mean, not, might not mean that much. But understand something, to be part of the kingdom of God today, and be part of the kingdom of God 2,000 years ago... Is different, and do you know what that difference is? Allegiance today to the kingdom in Christ will not bring you to death. 
If you lived 2,000 years ago in the Mediterranean world, in Asia Minor, and your allegiance was to Jesus Christ, his lordship, and his kingdom, it was a certain death. And please let me tell you, these were no deaths. It wasn't a firing squad. They, They were cruel deaths. Cruel. They tortured Christians slowly. I won't get into uh, the graphics of it. But please understand something. It was a sure, slow death for your testimony in Jesus Christ. Guess what was happening at this time? There was a great apostasy taking place because of this threat of being a, a, a Christian. It was a crime to be a follower of Christ. If we fast forward today, it is really rapidly, please don't miss this, a crime to be a follower of Christ. It is coming down. It might not be uh, being brought into change or physical persecution or economic sanctions yet, but please understand something. If people really know our views on morality and that there's only one way to salvation and you make those views known... Understand them sooner or later, people are going to want with you. To one degree or another, they're going to pursue you. They're going to disagree with you. And if you get into a real hostile situation, people will physically abuse you. This is the, this is the position that we're going in. This is, the, uh, this is what's on the horizon for many of us. For many of us, we haven't suffered to the point of shedding of blood. But that might happen. But the fear of man has gripped many a Christian. For even talking about Christ. People won't walk through the street with a Bible. They won't even tell them I'm going to a Bible study. I'm a, I'm a born again Christian. We keep things under guys because people might think something about us. And I say that because I know that touches many hearts. And if that touches our hearts and that sets fear in us, how can we stand up against true persecution of our faith? It's into this climate Jesus says you must be an overcomer. Whoever is an overcomer has a right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We need to have that patient endurance that is in Jesus. I want to speak about something about uh, the tenor of this revelation. It's a prophecy. This is not John sitting back on the island of Patmos saying, hmm, I'm in the spirit on the Lord's day and I'm praying. And I love the churches in Asia Minor. I was their pastor for a long time before they took me away. I received a letter saying that uh, so-and-so is fighting with so-and-so and and someone doesn't like the other person's cookies and they don't like the curtain colors. So I'm going to write a letter to the churches to get them straight. This is not normal church activity that John's writing to. John's writing a prophetic vision. He's a seer now. He's receiving a revelation from God. And basically what it's saying, it's coming with the force, the conviction of a prophet man sending an alarm of urgency to the churches to stand up, pay attention. God is speaking. Something's happening. And there's something wrong with the church. And we need to get prepared. 
This wasn't a pass or play situation. This wasn't a place where, oh yeah, that was a good sermon. I'll, I'll spit out, I'll, I'll eat, the, I'll chew the meat and I'll spit out the bones. Understand something? This came with the force of deep conviction. Jesus was laying at the feet of his churches, either overcome or suffer. That's what it was. It was an option. Stay faithful, he said to the church of Smyrna. Stay faithful, even to the point of death, because Satan is going to cast some of you into prison for 10 days, he says, but overcome, remain faithful, even unto death, and I'll give you the right to eat from the tree of life. Are you with me? This is not a letter coming with, oh yeah, it was, oh yeah, a letter came from, I don't know, maybe Paul or Peter, I forget who it was, I went to church today and I heard something, uh, no, they were gripped when the word was spoken, they sat there in awe as they heard the voice of God coming through this revelation, please don't miss that. The word of God always comes with force to those who have ears to hear what the spirit is saying. This is not just a circular letter that's going around. It's a prophetic word to the churches who are just about to go into a a greater tribulation. And what God is saying is wake up from your slumber. We can't miss that. The letter came to bless people who are under severe hardships. It came with the extreme power That those who even read it, and I'll explain what that means, and those who heard it were blessed. What do you think that means? Recital? I hope you don't think that's a recital. Those who are faithful to read it means this. Those who are willing to step up and preach it, no matter what the government says, will be blessed. And those who under the threat of being tortured to death for their faith of listening and saying, Amen, will be blessed. This is not about reciting and being blessed. This is not about uh, sitting in a hearing and being blessed. This is about standing up in attention in a world that's threatening you and saying, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. That's what it means. That's what it means. Chapter 1 sets the stage for the whole book. It's undervalued, do you know that? How many people have heard much about the book of Revelation in the last five years or two years? Much is said about the second and the third chapters. It's about seven churches with practical things that are going on. Something that's uh, still with us today. Nothing's changed. Much is said about the curious nature of chapter 4 to chapter 20. That's the judgments. That's the seven seals. That's the seven bowls. And that's the seven trumpets of Christ. A lot is saying is high apocalyptic imagery. Everybody wants to know. Everybody likes chapter 21 and 22. That speaks about the paradise of God and the, the new Jerusalem and the river of life that flows from the throne. And we see the Lord face to face. But there is a fascination with who the Antichrist is, a fascination with who the beast is, who the false prophet is, uh, what the seven trumpets mean, what are the seven bowls, what are the seven seals, fascination with the millennium or the new Jerusalem or uh, 
the mark of the beast, 666, and we get weighed down. But that's a mistake. We should be fascinated with the first chapter. Because everything that follows after the first chapter is built on the revelation of Jesus Christ that the church needs. The church doesn't need a fascination with to be of a curious nature. We need to know him who is the risen and glorified Lord. We need to have a personal revelation in our hearts and our minds that this is the God I serve and no other. Christians have to have this extraordinary personal revelation with Christ that they know who they're serving, that Jesus Christ is no sort of, uh, how can I say, second class citizen of, of heaven. He's not the second man on the totem pole. No, he is the ancient of days. He is the merciful high priest. He is God who was and is and is to come. That is who we owe our allegiance to. And it's that one who loved us and freed us from our sins by his shed blood on Calvary. We owe him all our allegiance. And that's what chapter 1 speaks about. But you won't hear much about chapter 1. People like to speak about the curiosities. And be careful, Christian, when we try to flatter ourselves... And I hear this many times. Oh, we're living in the end times. Anybody ever hear that? We're living in the end times. Oh, why? Because you had to walk a block for a quart of milk today? Is, is that the end times to you? You only got seven hours sleep instead of eight hours sleep? Is that the end times today? Or, or maybe our religious freedoms are being taken away. You think that's the end times? Understand something. When the end times come... You better know Christ or you will succumb to apostasy. When the end time comes, it will be miserable for anyone who names the name of Christ. But only those who overcome are granted to eat from the tree of life. Their names aren't erased from the Lamb's book of life. We're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's only us who have true hope, true peace, and true joy in this world. No matter all the sufferings, no matter all the tribulations, no matter all the persecutions that go on, it's the Christian under the severest persecutions and pressure that still has hope and still has joy. Only a Christian. Let's not flatter ourselves because we sit home and we read the paper and say, oh, things are getting really bad. We're in the end times. Sat down in a coffee shop not too long ago. A woman there I know, Christian woman from another persuasion. And after some talking, she started telling me that she's a bit of a seer. I like that. All right, this is going to be great, I say. Put another sugar in my coffee. And I'm listening to her how Obama is the Antichrist. And her eyes are wide open. This is good entertainment at the coffee shop. I'm like, really? Is he? How do you know? I'm a seer and God has told me. So this is the kind of stuff that goes on. People really believe us. 
I didn't bother getting into anything. But please, there were many people out there, they flatter themselves with all this, you know, you take a political change and this and you put it together. I don't sit here as a prophet. I sit here as an interpreter, as a pastor of the Word of God. I recognize what's going on. I recognize what the Word of God is. Nothing has changed. We've been in tribulation from the greatest, most horrible, horrific time the world has ever seen. It's not what's to take place. It's what they did to the Son of God when they crucified Him on the cross. That is the darkest day that you human history has ever seen and it's from that moment the tribulation began not the last seven years if you took a hundred Christians if you took a thousand Christians if you took a million Christians and you crucified them all it would be nothing compared to crucifying God on that day can we say amen, amen. let's not flatter ourselves with thinking it's getting bad and don't go there don't go there Nothing's worse than the moment they crucified the King of Glory. It's important to understand here. That it's in this climate of great change. This great intolerance that's going on, that's going to take place, that's taken place 2,000 years ago, that the revelation comes. The church needs to get a fresh glimpse of who Christ is. Because only Jesus Christ can hold the church together. Today, in America, as Christians, under the Constitution, we can fight for certain religious freedoms. We can fight for our voice to be heard, and we should. We have the right to gather as a group and protest against the government and what they're doing. We have every right to do that. We have a right to fight for what we believe. But please understand something. Though we do that, and though we pool our resources together, and though we gather together, please understand something. That is not the answer for the Christian church. Are you with me? It's not the answer. The answer is Christ. And as I said last week, it's not what the government can do for us. We don't rely on the government. We fight politically and we're allowed to. But at the end of the day, what's going to keep us together through any tribulation, any suffering, is a great understanding of who Christ is. I'll ask you this. I don't know if you're aware, but the day is coming. They've been fighting for years to get contributions, religious contributions, off of taxes. So that you can give, but you can't write it off. I challenge everybody here today, would you still give and give as much or give more if you couldn't write it off? Because it's around the corner. It might be the next administration or the other administration, but the day will come where they don't. There are groups lobbying now. Who are they to get a tax write-off? But we don't give because of that. We give because of the word of God says give. Amen. But do we still give and give more when they say you can't write it off? Or do we just change with the political climate? When they say don't talk about Jesus because it's upsetting others, do we stop talking about Jesus? It says in chapter 12 that they lost their life because of the word, the word of God and the testimony in Jesus. They love not their life unto death. That's what an overcomer is in the Bible. That's what an overcomer is in the book of Revelation. We have signed our life over to Christ. He's the deed holder of our life. 
yours, Lord. I'm a bondservant of Christ. So when it comes to dealing with the political changes, when it comes to the changes of intolerance and even persecution because of our Christian faith, and it's out there, do we change with the times? Of course not. We hold on to who Christ is. I want to close with some application on this. This is what we need today. And I'll sum up the whole chapter. All true ministers of the gospel throughout church history, true ministers, have done this with their congregations. They have laid Christ before them. All faithful ministers have. All local ministers, like you see right here, this is a local ministry. We represent what the, seven, the angel to the seven churches. Every church had a local leadership. They were to be faithful to Jesus Christ. They were to be faithful to the book of Revelation. They were to be faithful to the whole word of God. They were to hold out to their congregation the true Jesus of the Bible. That is our job. All local ministers are responsible for this undertaking. We need to fall down at Christ's feet before I can come here and say this is what the word of God says. John and myself and anyone who teaches from this pulpit, who's ever a leader in the church, has to have a revelation that they too in their hearts have already fallen down at the feet of Jesus as a dead man. Otherwise what I say won't move you one inch. Unless I myself and every true preacher of the gospel falls down at the feet of the Jesus of the Bible and has committed their life to him, their words are empty and void of any spiritual power and ability to change. Although you and I don't see a vision of Christ, I hope you didn't, or here's some revelation as John is. That doesn't mean we can't fall down at the feet of Christ. Because the word of God holds out Christ to us. As we study his word. As we study it in church Bible studies. As we study it in men's groups. As we study it in women's groups. As we hear it preached from the pulpits. The, the, the choice of the music we listen to. To the music we worship to at, at church. Understand something. That should all point to the awesome nature of Jesus Christ. Every church ministry should be built on who Jesus is, what Jesus is doing, what Jesus has done, and when Jesus is coming back, what he will do again. All church ministry is built up on the first chapter of Revelation of who Christ is. No minister should hold out anything from the pulpit than Jesus Christ. And that is it. In all his divine glory. Everything we do should bring us face to face with this Savior who wears the robe and a sachet of gold, which points to his royal dignity and his divine priesthood. And like the Old Testament high priest, he walked amongst the, the candlestick, the candle in, in, in the holy place. And Jesus Christ walks among the seven golden lampstands and he holds the ministers in his hand. No matter what the condition of the church looks like, we have to know beyond a shadow of doubt that Jesus Christ is in control of the Christian church. He's the son of man. He's the divine Messiah. He has hair like wool. It speaks of his eternality. His divine wisdom. 
what John is saying is I saw God himself in Jesus Christ, the ancient of days. Daniel chapter 7. He has flaming eyes, his omniscient understanding, coupled with his perfectly scrutinizing judgment of all hearts and minds of every human being that ever lived. This is Jesus Christ. His feet glowed like bronze of, that were on fire, and it speaks of his purity of heart. His voice was like many waters. It's his authority and power when he speaks. When truth is spoken, when truth is expounded on, when you're hearing the voice of God with a prophetic unction and a prophetic release and a prophetic power, there's no deliberations on what you're doing after church, what you did yesterday, what you're going to do tomorrow. Understand something. When Christ speaks, he commands everybody's attention. When we're listening to who Christ is, what he has done and what he says, it commands our attention. These aren't words that say, oh yeah, you know, if, if, maybe tomorrow I'll start. This is not like a diet. It sounds good, I'll start next week after Christmas. When you hear the word of God spoken and you have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying, we start immediately to whatever God is speaking to our hearts, amen? Because like many rushing waters, he commands our attention. This is the one who walks and holds the church together. So we need to get our minds and our hearts around who this Christ is. Everything we do as Christians should be with a high respect to Christology. Something we've been speaking about on Thursday nights. Something we spoke about last week. Something we're speaking about today. We should study Christ. We should know Christ. We should honor Christ. We should know who he is, what he's done, what he's doing. Jesus Christ shouldn't be a subject that if I feel like it, I'll read about it. We should hunger and thirst for Christ. All of us, together as a church, should hunger and thirst for Christ. Nothing should come out of John's mouth or my mouth or anybody who else ministers but Jesus Christ in one form, shape, or another. His will. And it's designed for our lives. This is the attitude of heart and minds filled with the magnificent sovereignty of Christ. It might not mean much, but you know what it means the most? At the toughest times of your life and the toughest times of my life, that's when the sovereignty of Christ is overwhelmingly glorious. When you can't move to the left or right. When there's persecution to the north and to the south, to the east and to the west. And nobody wants to know about this Christ whom we love. Nobody wants to know about this Jesus whose feet we fall down on. Understand something. When life is at its worst and life is at its toughest. That is when the sovereignty of this picture this detailed uh, 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 picture of who Christ is becomes real in the Christian's life. Please understand, as we begin to learn our whole life, our whole Christian life, and I challenge all of us on this, should be slowly but surely bowing more and more down before Christ like dead people.
when we see Christ in the scriptures, we see him operating in our life, we should fall down in deep humility before this Christ. The heavenly revelation that we just read, it conquers every earthly decree. Every threat that comes against you or me in my life or the Christian church, this revelation takes place over it. There's no decree that can shout down the revelation that the Bible holds out of who Christ is as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, like always, encouraging us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, Father God. We thank you, Father God, for allowing your church to know the things that are about to take place. We recognize that the climate in America is changing quickly, Father God, becoming antagonistic against the Christian faith, Father God, and those who hold to it. But, Father God, I pray that you raise up a standard, that the Christian church in America grasp the revelation of Jesus Christ, his awesome nature, Father God, and that we love not our lives even unto death, Father God, and like dead men we fall down to Jesus Christ, Father God, so that we too, like John, can go through the tribulation with the endurance that's found in Jesus, Father God. As we keep our eyes and our ears on the perfecter of our faith, he will keep us. In Jesus' name.